Um, welcome, everybody, uh, this, this evening at King's, uh, King's College, London, for a lecture that is in memory of our colleague, Andrea Zerbini de Silva. My name is Carol Palmer, and I'm the director of CBRL in Amman, and it was my, my pleasure to work with, with Andrea very closely during the last six months of, of his career before he unfortunately fell ill. He passed away in, in July of last year, and we've been running a series of events to remember him, and we particularly wanted to do something tonight with Dr. Bob Bewley, who, was, who's the, who is the director of the Iamina Project, Endangered Archaeology in the Middle East and North Africa at Oxford University, with whom Andrea worked and really worked to found the project. He was initially a research officer and then was in charge of their GIS and IT, originally a classicist, but a man of many parts who, who really combined classics, archaeology and IT. And so Bob, as his former boss and CBRL, but also where King's comes in, is late in 2018, um, Andrea was the driving force behind a project called Medih, Mapping Digital Cultural Heritage in Jordan, that is a combination, a partnered project, part of the Newton Halliday, between King's College London, specifically King's Digital Lab, and the Hashemite University and the Department of Antiquities of Jordan. And this project is ongoing. It's two years. We have the research assistant, Alessandra, in the uh, audience. I should also say that we have our colleague from Amman, Firas Bakayin, who worked very closely with Andrea here this evening. So we want to consider some very serious things, but also uh, celebrate uh, cultural heritage and shared passions, as, as Bob has put the title here this evening. Thank you very much for coming out on a January evening. And I will like to invite Bob Bewley to the floor, who, who has a very distinguished career, of which being director of Iamina is the latest, uh, formerly director of the Heritage Lottery Fund. Director of operations, of yes. Director of yes. operations, yes. okay, Different. thank you. Different. So, thank you. Now, I'm a bit worried because uh, Carol said I was going to be serious. Well, that'll be the first time <laughs> in my life. Um, it's very worrying to be, to be recorded because then somebody can play it back to you. Right, well, thank you, uh, Carol, for those kind words, and thank you for the invitation. Um, the reason I called it Sharing Passions was that um, it seemed as if Andrea and I had, had various interests that overlapped. And what's interesting about Andrea and the number of times we've remembered him is that he let it be known that he wanted to be remembered. And that set me thinking, because I thought, well, that's a really good thing to say. Because as Brits, we don't normally talk about things like that. But I thought, yes, let's remember him. So there's been many opportunities. Um, and his name changed in that his stepfather said, I want to adopt him. Um, uh, and so he's now taken on his stepfather's surname. And I don't know whether he's De Silva Zabini or Zabini De Silva, because you said it one way. And I, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, and the other thing I wanted to just highlight is that you write an abstract for something. And then you, you, you write the paper and you get your pictures together. And the, the abstract and the paper, there is nothing that matches up. So I've tried to match it up as best as possible. Because um, I wrote in the abstract, archaeologists thrive on discovering places, objects, or stories about the past. 
especially when they give us a sense of identity and meaning in our modern lives. Um, and that sort of weaves its way through the whole of this story. Um, and this is Andrea and his wife Karen, who, and Karen I believe is travelling in India, can't be here at the moment. Um, but she's been very helpful in, in bringing together a number of these events, um, often getting friends, I almost said spies, to record them and then send them to Andrea's mother. So he, she hears everything we say. And so we had a meeting which was very informal but very moving uh, in Oxford on the 20th of September 2019. Um, then we had another event, Carol didn't know I was going to show this picture, um, <laughs> in a man which was, that was, am I right? That was around the time of Mad, the, the Maddie Age um, inaugural meeting, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was it's yes, on the launch. It was. And then we had a wonderful dinner in CBRL, um, at which Faraz brought out a bottle of wine that Andrea had given him and said, I would like you to drink this when I'm gone. So that was, that was a very moving moment. Um, and as you can see, it was multi generational as well. Um, and there was, so there was lots of fun had on that evening. Uh, then we had a slightly more serious event in All Souls College, Oxford. Um, at which, and one of the themes running through this will be about Andrea the scholar, um, his, at which his former tutor said that uh, both in terms of his MPhil and then his PhD, but particularly the uh, MPhil or MA, um, when he was doing it, he, he appointed an external examiner and he was really worried because this external examiner was a particularly difficult examiner and um, Richard, is the supervisor, read the MA and thought, this is, this is good, but I'm just going to be, you know, a little cautious. Um, and then the external examiner read it, rang him up and said, you've marked it too harshly, you need to give it a better mark. Um, that's just how good he was as a scholar. And um, after the paper that, uh, I, after the talk that we, we had in, in Amman, uh, one of the German um, scholars whose name I forget, but he said he remembered... Thomas Weber. Uh, Thomas Weber, that's right. Um, said he got a picture of Andrea many, many years ago holding this object, which is the head of a sphinx, I believe, um, yes, which, is, which excited Andrea a lot. Um, and it wasn't, and the, the great thing about Andrea was he was interested in everything. And there will be a digital theme running through this uh, as well as we, as we press on. Um, and then I also put in the abstract, archaeologists also love to travel, but want to understand their roots and where they came from. Um, and Andrea was a great uh, lover of travel. And as you'll hear later, he got us, uh, uh, organized a, 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 a conference series. And this is him in Sulaymaniyya. And we'd been on an overnight flight and we all needed coffee. And the other thing about Andrea was he was really good with his coffee. Um, so he said, any chance any coffee, Andrea? And then 10 minutes later, he turns up with um, a bevy of bevies. Um, but he also uh, went on the amazing Mongol rally. And he came to me and said, would it be possible to take four months off and drive in a Fiat Panda from London to Ulaanbaatar? And I went, Andrea, no. It would not be possible to do it. Um, you can't go. And he said, well, I'm going to go anyway, and I'm going to go with Marco. And Andrea was probably, what, six foot maybe? And if you look at Marco here, he's six foot three, six foot four, and that's the Fiat Panda that Marco has just got out of. And I actually saw him getting out of it and thought, how on earth are those two going to drive to Mongolia in that? But they did it. Um, and, uh, and, but, I, but I said to Andrea, he could only have three months off. Uh, not the four, but he, he did that over the summer of, I guess, 2017, yeah. Um, and I just, as we're talking about travel, 
I just thought I would just put a little note in as to how I ended up working in the Middle East or even started working in the Middle East. I was lucky enough um, to go to Manchester University where the professor was Barry Jones who did a course on aerial archaeology and I was beginning to, uh, last weekend there was the British Association for Near Eastern Archaeology and it was a conference and it was held in Oxford and there were two people there, one of them was Nicholas Postgate, um, the chap on the right, is that the right? Yeah. Um, and the other was Charles Burney and they were both there um, and they were the two who got me into Near Eastern Archaeology and then I was thinking why did I ever want to do Aerial Archaeology and Near Eastern Archaeology? And it was Barry Jones showing me a copy of a book, uh, which I'll come on to in a minute. So I was lucky enough to go to Iraq in 1978 and again in 1981 uh, with a little visit to Iran in the middle. Um, and my first visit to Jordan was actually in 1981 because in those days you couldn't fly from Baghdad to anywhere. And I had to get the bus from Baghdad to Amman and had half a day, and they said, you've got to go and see Crystal Bennett up at the British, it was called something else in those days, the British Institute for Archaeology. Um, and I was lucky enough to go back to uh, Baghdad, literally just last year in October, late September, early October, went to the Shah Bandar Cafe, which is one of the best cafes anywhere in the world, and it's got an aerial photograph on the wall. Um, and, and as with Andrea, uh, he would dig out an aerial photograph from any source you could find. So I asked the cafe owner whether I could take a picture, and he said yes. Um, and then that links back to um, air photographs and mapping, two things that uh, Andrea did in, in, in very, very well. And it goes back to the First World War, and in a way, the work we're doing in the Endangered Archaeology Project and that uh, Andrea picked up on is less of the taking of photographs, but we'll come on to that. But the most important thing is mapping it. Um, and this is the father of aerial archaeology in the First World War, OGS Crawford in his trench. Um, and he was the person who really codified what we do as aerial archaeologists. And he hated being in the infantry, and if you read his autobiography, which I thoroughly encourage you to do, it's called Said and Done, he describes a moment when he's in the trenches and he's sitting, on a, he's sitting down and he stands up and somebody says to him, well, can I have your seat? And he said, yes. And then he, uh, Crawford goes to the back of the trench and a shell hits the exact seat where he was sitting and the man who took it was killed. And he said, I was 10 seconds from death. Um, uh, so that we were very lucky that he survived. He was the person who looked at this photograph and realised the significance of um, uh, the aerial view and not only the ability to see things from above, but also that there are vegetational changes. You can see here at Stonehenge, uh, there's a different coloration of the ditch and the henge has an external ditch. So he realised that there were these things called crop marks and he was the one who first codified them. Uh, here he is, the picture of him uh, with the highest technology of the day, 1932 on his bicycle going to survey Salisbury Plain and this publication, Air Survey and Archaeology, this is, this is the beginning of the codification of what we do um, because we don't excavate and that was the other thing which is um, in a sense that both Andrea and I shared is that, that, that although we loved excavation actually our careers meant that we didn't actually do much of it. And if you want to follow up at all, uh, Ancient Landscapes by Bradford, uh, really looking at Second World War, War photographs, transformed our understanding of a number of places, uh, southern Italy, but he also predicted that the, the whole subject of aerial archaeology uh, would become a worldwide phenomenon. Um, 
he actually predicted that it would start in Dalmatia and places that became Yugoslavia, um, not not really realizing, as you wouldn't necessarily in 1945, that we would have uh, 40 years of a Cold War. And uh, just to finish off the story on Stonehenge, it was really sometimes I put those slides uh, next to each other because it doesn't matter how important the site is, everything changes. And if you go back, think back to the photograph I showed you, which was taken in 1906, and we now look at Stonehenge, which was in 2017. Um, not only has a road been built, uh, this road, the A344, uh, built since then, but also closed as well, um, so, that, so that it's gone through the whole process. And the idea is that eventually you will be able to walk up the avenue and uh, if English Heritage get rid of the fence here, you would then be able to approach uh, Stonehenge as you would have done way back in the Bronze Age. Um, another point to make when I'm talking about en endangered archaeology and aerial archaeology is that it's not the same the whole world over, um, except that we, are, we have been, all of us, anywhere in the world, have been destroying our archaeology bit by bit, day by day. Um, luckily, in large parts of Europe uh, and Britain, the ploughed fields reveal their secrets as they do here in terms of the crop marks. Um, in the Middle East and North Africa where you have different landscapes, once a site is damaged, whether it be through ploughing or bulldozing or whatever else, it's gone forever. And although we've lost uh, prehistoric Roman and medieval landscapes, welcome back Mike. Um, I was going to make the joke that um, it's, <laughs> sorry, it's a change. That, well, yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, that that Mike left early, and he said it, it's the first time somebody's walked out of a lecture before I've even started. Um, but I won't make that joke, Mike. Um, uh, so in Britain, at least, we have some some depth of soil which can preserve the sites. In the Middle East and North Africa, we don't. And at the end of the Cold War. Uh, I was working for English Heritage as it was then, now Historic England, and we were asked by a number of countries um, whether we could teach them the methods of aerial archaeology because behind the Iron Curtain you weren't allowed to take a photograph, you weren't allowed to use maps. There were stories that a Hungarian archaeologist who worked for the state lost a, a 1 to 10,000 map, it blew away while he was doing field work, and he spent six months in jail because they thought he was a spy and he'd sold it. Um, it was that difficult, um, and then it transformed overnight. So we did four years of a, a, an EU-funded project uh, doing training in the Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, um, Poland, Estonia, and then also, latterly, in Italy, but that was on a... On a um, a European-wide scale, and we, we did many training there. Um, and then got involved in the, in the uh, Middle East, and looking at some of the historic air photographs is really important, just as you saw the ones of Stonehenge, because it does show the change um, in the landscapes, and also what impresses me about these photographs from both immediately pre-war and post-war is the, quali the air quality you would not be able to take a photograph of those pyramids now, I, I doubt, because of pollution and air pollution. Um, and it, it re it's really striking in these early photographs. Um, and often they are from glass plate negatives, how they took some of these photographs while in a, in a rickety old aeroplane with dodgy RAF pilots. Sorry, Mike. Um, uh, I don't know. There's Abu Simbel. Um, but the pioneers were people like Sir Oral Stein, um, 
And I often think Andrea probably saw himself as a kind of uh, explorer in the Oralstein mode with his flying suit and his flying jacket. Um, we have now digitised a lot of these and they're available uh, on, on the website of Apami. Uh, this is one example of Hatra um, in the days when you could get near it with an aeroplane. And this is a whole series of photographs that have been stitched together in the darkroom um, which record the way in which Hatra looked in the 1930s. And a little bit later I'll show you a picture of one uh, of Hatra in um, a satellite image so we can do the comparison. There were other pioneers like Antoine Poitabar, um, and Poitabar, obviously French, wrote this book, La Trace de Rome, but he was either a Jesuit priest or an archaeologist or an engineer or a spy, or all four, um, but most people think he was a spy. Um, but he was able to fly over uh, what are now Syria and Jordan, take wonderful air photographs. There isn't time today to go through the detail of them, but there is one, I haven't put it in unfortunately, but there is one of um, Palmyra, and again, the view is absolutely magnificent because of the, the clarity of the air. Um, and the reason these are important now is because of the massive change that's happened in the landscape since then. And this was the book that actually inspired me uh, as a young undergraduate in 1975, um, Flights Over the Ancient Cities of Iran by Eric Schmidt. Published in 1940, um, Schmidt was excavating with originally Pennsylvania, but then the Chicago Oriental Institute, and they were excavating at Persepolis. And they said, what we need to do is get an aeroplane uh, so we can fly between Tehran and Persepolis, because it's such a long way. And his wife, uh, Mary Helen, said, but you must do aerial archaeology while you're doing it. And we don't know why she knew about aerial archaeology, but she clearly did. Um, and that, if you can see the red, I don't know how clear it's... Can you see the red traces? Yeah. So they, they, they must have shipped it to somewhere like Cairo or um, one of the ports on um, the west coast and then flew it across from Jordan uh, over Baghdad into Tehran and then did all those, all the red that you can see are the expeditions they did flying. And, and I was, I'd always wanted to follow up and find out more about him. So when I started the Endangered Archaeology Project, I was invited by the Chicago Oriental Institute to give a talk and was able to read all the um, notes and logbooks. And before they went on their expedition in the 1930s, um, they drove across Germany, because obviously Schmidt was German, um, and went to Jena and bought all the best possible cameras. And I then discovered that Schmidt had spent three or four years in a Russian prisoner of war camp at the end of the First World War um, because he was fighting for the Germans against the Russians and then decided that when he was let out he wanted nothing more to do with Europe and went to America. Um, and the tragedy was that unfortunately his wife died in childbirth in 1939 and all the early drafts of the book are all about his wife and obviously the editor said this is a serious book about aerial archaeology you can only mention her in a paragraph. Um, and the reason they stopped the flying, does it say that 1937 was the last one, was because Iran and America fell out over some diplomatic thing, and you think nothing ever changes, does it? Um, and that's his aerial view of uh, Persepolis, and he says in the book there that the, the photographs of Persepolis from the air changed his whole understanding of the site and changed his whole excavation strategy. Um, but what I love about it is if you read the detail at the bottom, 
Um, he recorded exactly where they were every two minutes. And if you look at that, he says April 20th, 1936, 8.09 a.m. Not five past or ten past, 8.09. And the altitude, 1,068 metres. And that's at a hundredth of a second with no filter, which is amazing that you get such a fantastic image. Um, we're so lucky now that we use, we live in a digital world and it's all recorded by uh, GPS. And even though that, ha that has its problems, the reason Faraz is here is he's cataloguing the thousands of photographs that he took in October. Um, and then when you press the button, if the, if the time on Google Earth and the time on the camera are not the same, it takes you to somewhere else where you thought you were half an hour beforehand. Um, so the old methods have their benefits. Um, and then other images like this, this is obviously Jurash, for those of you who know Jordan, uh, taken in 22nd of November 1926. And again, for those of you who know Jurash, uh, the change is dramatic because that, if the little pointer works, that's, that's Jurash as it was. That's now all completely built up. And all of this is now completely built up. I don't think I've... Um, because I've got so many slides and I've got to finish before nine o'clock, um, uh, I've, I've left some of that. Um, and then the other thing I said in my uh, abstract was the challenges of working in the Middle East and North Africa. Actually, the challenges of working in the Middle East and North Africa are either no greater or less or any, or any more difficult than they are working in Europe and Britain. And I often think it's easier to get the Lebanese, the Palestinians and the Jordanians to talk together than it is the different counties of Yorkshire, sorry Mike, uh, Lancashire, Warwickshire. Uh, my experience in England was they wouldn't talk to each other. And you thought, hang on a minute, you're just in a different county. Um, but we'll come on to that. Um, so having uh, done a lot of work in Britain, I got an email from David Kennedy in 1997 um, saying, that he'd had one flight in a helicopter with the Royal Jordanian Air Force. He'd been trying for many, many years. Um, and the three people who helped him do that are in the audience, Mike, Tricia, and Jane. And uh, he said, I think his words were something along the lines that he didn't really know what he was doing in the air, but rumor had it that I might have an idea. Would I like to come and do some air photography in Jordan? We thought at the time it would be a two or three year project. Um, we'd been asked if we could do a book, which we did, Ancient Jordan from the Air, and uh, I spent just my holiday time doing it because I had another job, um, and we created, and David and his team in, in uh, Western Australia created the website APAMI, the Air Photographic uh, Aerial, Archeolo Aerial Archaeological Archive of the Middle East, over 100,000 images, so every image we take and more besides goes on the website. The project is still in existence. We did our, whatever it is, 22nd season in 2019. And tomorrow and next week, I finish the report for that, um, as long as Faraz finishes the cataloging tomorrow. Um, I'm only joking. Um, and hopefully, we'll go back again in 2020 as well. Ancient Jordan from the Air, uh, available from all good booksellers and CBRL. Um, and Andrea was instrumental in many, many ways uh, of keeping the project going, I had hopes, especially when he got the job in CVRL, that he could take over the project because he would be based locally. And one of the things we've always wanted to do is transfer as much as possible into Jordan because we can't, I don't think, 
in the long term we can't keep on doing it from here um, and Faraz is on this picture Matt Dalton who's now based in um, uh, Western Australia uh, but working in Alula as well and then a couple of the pilots. We started, and I'll show a picture later, we started flying in, in the Huey helicopter, which was fantastic. One of the questions that's asked of us every year is, surely with satellite imagery and all the work you've done over 20 years, you're not finding anything new. And I use this example, and apologies for those of you who've seen it before, but this is of a, a Roman stone quarry within eight miles of the airfield marker. Um, we had Usually what happens near airfields is that you can't take air photographs because there's too much traffic. We were able to do it on this particular day. And even though I'm not a Roman archaeologist, this really fascinates me because you can see just from that one photograph a whole range of um, different things that are happening. You can see the line here where they're cutting out what would be the square block before they make the drum. And here you can see other bits that have been cut out. And then you can see these other drums here in different forms. And then your imagination takes over and you think, imagine what that was like. That they all turn up for work one day and they suddenly realise the Romans have gone. They're not going to get paid. Nobody wants this stuff anymore. Um, and so if, if we, what we hope is that this site will be protected and one day hopefully uh, maybe even excavated, um, and the reason it's important that they do it is that that's where it is and the quarries, because of the stone, these are the modern quarries coming up and then this is the processing area, it's going to get squeezed. And in fact we flew near it just um, 18 months ago and I could see that there are people wanting to build on the same ridge. So it's, it's, it really is under threat. So we, there is, and I think flying over Jordan in the last five years the pressure on the landscape has got even greater than it was a few years ago. Um, and, and there were times, there was actually one, I think it was in 2018, we were flying around one site and you could actually see the bulldozer bulldozing the site away as we orbited. Um, that's just a distribution map of the photographs that we've taken. Um, and every year we, we look at it and analyze it and think, well, why, why is it we haven't flown over here? Um, and there are two reasons, one is uh, we generally look at the satellite imagery before we go and we can't find anything here. And the second reason is usually uh, we've run out of fuel by the time we get here and want to go back and look at the areas where we can be more productive. But I think we will do some more photography in these areas. Um, but it is just the nature of the landscape and the desert where the, the, their secrets uh, take... There either is nothing there or they're harder to find. Um, and then you can do various analyses as well. Um, we're based in the university, and you know, universities want us to do research, quite rightly. Um, and so here, the distribution of cairns and pendants. Uh, this is wheels and enclosures, kites and different walls. And here, airmail routes, um, and AFBS just stands for Air Force Bases. Um, but Jordan was also where, the, during the 30s, there was the Baghdad to Cairo mail route. And that we still see markers in the land uh, that the pilots would navigate with. And clearly there was a northern route here and then a southern route as well. Um, but that was, as it were, proper flying, um, where you would fly up the coast, turn right at the Wadi Mujib, and then just pray until you got to Baghdad. Because um, if the weather came in, it wasn't very good. Um, and then the other thing is also monitoring sites that we do. This is uh, 
Herbert Medina. Um, if you look at page uh, 112, 13 in Ancient Jordan from the Air, this site it looks very much the same, but no excavation at all. Um, so we're recording this and, and helping the excavators uh, with recording that as well. Um, and then working with other projects like the Great Arab Revolt Project um, in jo under the Jordanian law, um, a site that is older than 1845, is that right? It's about then, or is it 1745? 1740, yeah, yeah, 1750, okay. Uh, anything older than 1750 can be protected, but if it's more recent than 1750, it can't. So a lot of the um, First World War and Great Arab Revolt, uh, this is just a site of trenches, uh, and there was th this team were working in the field, and they said, could we photograph a number of sites? And we did, and we also photographed this one, um, and they said, oh, that was the one hill we didn't go up, and we thought there was nothing on the top because it was late at night, and we didn't want to go up. Um, so they've actually named it after me in, the, in their website because I found it. Um, but I thought they would have found them all. So it, it, it is good to have that combination of both field work um, and uh, uh, aerial survey. And this is a site way down in the south, um, in, in the Wissad area. Maybe some sort of hill fort, but it's very hard to use, as it were, our terminology. Uh, on these sites because inside of these are presumably burials of some description. Um, but then when you zoom out, uh, you realise that wherever, doesn't matter how far you are from any human habitation, uh, there is a bulldozer. There is somebody right driving a bulldozer. Fortunately, whether he ran out of steam and this got to be too much of a hill, but he carried on around here and then went straight on there. And you just think, what on earth were they doing? I mean, I guess this is some prospecting for oil or gas or something. It's the only reason. And you see these running for mile after mile after mile. Um, and, and this would make a really wonderful research project to actually find out what's going on there. And um, a German colleague saw this picture the other day. In fact, a, the, you, used it, you used this as the advert for the thing. And, and, and Bernd Moller-Neuhoff said, that's down in Wissad. Oh, can I, can I have a picture? Yes. So he may be setting up a project. Um, and then other sites, I just dug out some older ones. This is um, Kaza Aserkim, uh, and this, was, this, this, was, this is a digitized from a slide. And this is at the time when the Italians, I believe they were Italians, were uh, repairing the wall and access was being brought in. But access can, have, um, can be a double-edged sword because what it actually meant was that the road, as you can see here, allowed them and this, the rumour has it that this was the army that did this, drove in in their trucks, believing there was gold here, and uh, actually destroyed a sizable part of that very, very important site. Um, and the site is important because when we visited, I was finding middle Paleolithic flints all over the place, and we know that it was in continuous, probably con not necessarily in continuous occupation, but some of the latest stuff uh, relates to the Islamic period. So it's a very, very important location. And the, the three years ago, we were flying around it, and we were held up by our traffic. And then I noticed that, that in the wadi next to it was one of these kites that, that had been adapted to, to fill the whole wadi that no one had ever seen before, even though we'd flown it many, many times. And it was only because air traffic had held us up before we could go for refueling that we found it. Um, so it, you never know what you're going to find. Now, this is uh, Andrea the Innovator, because we'd flown all these years in Hueys, 
and probably the most uncomfortable helicopter in the world because they're canvas seats. But this seat here always faced forward. So if somebody wanted to come on a, on a trip with us, we always said, yeah, but unfortunately you're going to have what we call the donkey seat and you're going to look forward. Within seconds, Andrea took one look at it. He said, can't I turn that seat round? And we went, well, I'm sure you can. That's the pilot. And the pilot said, yeah, just pull these out, turn it around and put them back in again. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Um, so often you do need another pair of eyes. Uh, this is my, one of my favourite pictures of Andrea because here he is in the helicopter taking a selfie. Uh, and that's why I've put here, wanted to be remembered. <laughs> and Faraz is in the background. <laughs> um, and, uh, but photography, he loved his photography. Um, I don't think he took that many selfies, but I thought that was quite interesting. And then uh, a slight diversion, um, just for a few slides. We were very, very lucky, um, again, through... Uh, and I'll come on to this as well, because Andrea was, was brilliant at having networks and contacts. Um, but again, through a contact of somebody, uh, this guy in the middle, Sufyan, who is Jordanian but works in Leiden, and he has contacts in Oman. And they had heard what we'd done in Jordan, and so in, I've got to remember my dates now, so in January 2018, we went and did one flight, and I think this is a picture from that one flight in a Puma, um, to prove that it might be possible to fly in Oman, which it was. We went back again in January 2019 and did three more flights, but this time in different helicopters. Um, we did. Uh, one in an NH90, which was a great platform, and the other in the Lynx, which was also very good. But the problem with the Lynx, although it's a very fast helicopter, it uses a lot of fuel and you have to refuel. Um, and, in, and, uh, and the particular refueling technique was to use uh, drum, drums that had to be hand pumped in. So that took a long time. But never mind. Um, uh, we flew along the coast on that first day. Um, and you can see it's all, it's all beautifully recorded by the GPS, so you don't have to record every two minutes because it's recording it for you every 10 seconds. And uh, it would be the subject of another talk to talk about Oman, but there are over 5,000 towers and castles alone in Oman that, that might or might not need recording. Um, it's a fascinating country. Some of you I know have been, and others, if you haven't, thoroughly encourage you to go. Um, and again, what we're trying to do is build up the number of countries where you can do aerial archaeology, and there is uh, some aerial archaeology taking place in northern Saudi Arabia as well with David Kennedy and his team. Um, so it is growing, but it's a very slow burn. And all of that led to uh, this project, the Amina project, the Endangered Archaeology project, and uh, when we were advertising or thinking we might uh, get a proposal David Kennedy, in fact, introduced me to Andrea, and we had coffee in London, um, and we put his name on the, on the project. Um, and it was just at the height of the difficulties in terms of the crisis, the humanitarian crisis. And one of the questions we get a lot is, why, why is it that the stones, the buildings, the archaeology, whatever it might be, are as important or more important than human lives? And we say, well, they're not but the two things are interlinked. And, and I thought that this, um, uh, my daughter lives in Berlin and she sent me a picture of it. Um, and this is a, an installation by Ai Weiwei of all the life jackets that were recovered in the Mediterranean, just to, to remind everybody that this is a humanitarian crisis. Um, and the refugees here, you can see where they, uh, just how many, look at that, 2.9 million going to Turkey. Um, and you could look at this for a long time, but the, the 
there are lots of things you could talk about it, but from the from the cultural heritage point of view, it is that actually the movement of a population does have an impact on the land and on the landscape. But let's just go back to the archaeology for a moment. Um, Jordan was was way ahead of any other uh, country, um, not just in the Middle East, but any other country, in having an online database called Mega Jordan, where from anywhere in the world you could get access to the information about the uh, archaeology of Jordan. Um, we were asked by Arcadia, our funders, uh, as you can see, a charitable fund, um, to see whether we could record rapidly uh, the archaeology from satellite imagery and, and create a database. Um, I'll come on to why I've put Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, but that's the Cultural P Protection Fund, which I'll come on right at the very end. Um, and so we created the Endangered Archaeology Project, as I've said here, Voyage of Discovery and Documenting Damage and Destruction. That sounds terribly depressing, uh, but actually, as archaeologists, we tend to record things that are being destroyed. That's what we do. Um, and that's how we <coughs> discover things. And if you were to ask me now whether we should have started as far west as Mauritania and gone as far east as Iran and covered nearly 20 countries, I would have said no, we should have started smaller. Um, uh, but never mind, that's, this is where we're at. Um, and as I've said here, discovering sites, monitoring change, but last and not least, assessment of the threats and damage to those sites, because this information we feel should be used not just by people to do research, but also to understand the condition of the sites, because you can't decide what to protect unless you've recorded as much as possible. Um, and the sources and everything that we use, methods, it is historic maps, it is ancient uh, and, or historic air photographs, satellite imagery wherever we can get them, and more and more is available, there's historic satellite imagery and modern satellite imagery. Some of the 1960s uh, corona imagery is now available and was declassified by Bill Clinton because he happened to be sitting, uh, was it Bill Clinton? Yes, Bill Clinton, because he happened, happened to be sitting next to an archaeologist at dinner. Um, and he said, I've no idea how I can help an archaeologist. And the archaeologist says, I do, declassify all the imagery. And he did. And then also, uh, just in here, uh, field work as well. There is no, there, although we will never get to see all of the sites, but actually visiting as many as possible on the ground uh, is, is a good thing. And the database, in a many, many ways, the database would not be what it is um, for all its glory and one or two flaws um, if it wasn't for Andrea. Andrea joined the project as an archaeologist, as a research officer, and then the GI office, GIS officer left after three months. And Andrea sort of admitted quietly that as a teenager he used to do programming and he knew a little bit about computers and he knew maybe that he would be able to develop it in a way that somebody else with, that would cost us a lot more um, and wasn't an archaeologist uh, wouldn't have been able to do. So he was absolutely crucial in building the database um, and now there are, it's getting on for over 300,000 records in the database. Um, I have to say that because that's how many we said we'd put in by June um, and if we don't do it then Arcadia will be very upset but they are at the moment very happy with us um, and there isn't the time and nor would you be interested to go through all the different fields that have to be filled in um, but you can, you can as, as members of staff they can do as little or as much as, as 
as in terms of recording uh, down here. The main thing is that we have uh, the location of it and hopefully some kind of interpretation, um, but then the condition assessment and everything else will take longer. But that's how the national authorities that have access to this information will use it, and equally how researchers can then uh, analyse it as, as best they can. Um, and this is a map Andrea created for one of my publications or one of the publications showing the distribution of the sites. This is now a couple of years old. Uh, as you can see, we haven't done much in Mauritania. But we've tried to do something in all the countries wherever possible. Um, and you will see, and I'll come on to this in a minute, you'll see that we did an awful lot in Yemen. When we started the project in January 2015, we didn't think that Yemen would be a priority. But within three months, with the conflict starting there, it became an absolute priority. And uh, very quickly realized that there were these uh, reasons for the project starting. Conflict was one of the reasons that the project ever got going. But actually, it's other agents of destruction, um, the looting, but particularly construction and agriculture, that do more damage than any other single uh, fact. Um, the one archaeologist believes that dams are probably the biggest threat to archaeology right across the region. Um, and, uh, but I think it's a combination of, of, of dams and the agriculture as well. And probably what we need to do in the, in the future, and although we've called it natural erosion, I want to change that and call it climate change, because actually that's what we mean. Climate change is having a huge impact on the cultural heritage, and it's something that so far we haven't done enough of, and I think we need to make that the priority for the next um, three years without a doubt. Uh, just one example here, again, of um, Andrea was very, very good at picking up on things very quickly because what I said what we should be doing is talking to as many of the authorities across the region to find out where the construction projects are so that we can do a rapid survey beforehand. And he, and he found out that there, were that there was going to be a ring road for Madaba, and for any of you who've driven in or around Madaba, my God, it needs a ring road. Um, and... Uh, so we did this, and in fact Andrea took the lead on this, and it was really important in terms of getting the project going, because it was able to show how it wasn't just a group of people in Oxford, Leicester or Durham uh, working, as it were, on their own. Something happened there, I didn't mean it to. Um, it was actually working with the authorities, and, and I think got to remember the numbers now but I think within the green zone there there are 141 sites and I think there was either it was either 11 or 14 of the sites would be directly affected by the ring road um, and, and I've subsequently met inspectors from the Department of Antiquities who've actually used that data and gone, gone out in the field and looked at them and I believe the ring road hasn't been built but what I don't know is whether that's as a result of running out of money or it was to do with the fact that there was too much archaeology in the way. I suggest, I probably think it was probably the lack of money. Um, now, this is the hardest part to get through the next two or three slides very quickly because uh, it's work that Michael Fradley and Andrea did together. And when Michael gives his presentation, he admits it's a really dry, difficult subject. But trying to summarize the Kyle Bingham agreement is very difficult. By all means, read that. Um, it may not mean much to you, but my understanding is that under this agreement, the United States will allow um, imagery 
to be released as long as it's no, it, it doesn't show any more detail that you, than you can get commercially. In other words, they're trying to restri restrict just how much can be seen of certain parts of Israel and therefore uh, associated countries. And what Andrea discovered, and they did, Andrea and Michael did this in two weeks, they discovered that actually the, the, this amendment, it's called the Kyle Bingham Amendment, needs to be changed because at the moment the, the United States will only release imagery that has two meter resolution when actually you can get it publicly available for half meter resolution. Um, and uh, which I think is a really important thing because it opens up the ability to see uh, a lot more archaeology than we could otherwise have seen. But the, um, the and, and that's, that's just a, I'm not sure why Michael put it on, on its side like that, but he did. But that means you've all got to go like that to try and read it. But what it's showing is just there, are a lot, there is a lot of imagery that should be re released and can be released by commercial activities and in fact is released by Airbus and other, everybody else but they say in the emails, don't tell anybody publicly that we've released it. But they've released it, so it's publicly available. Um, and so the, Michael and Andrea wrote to the authorities in America and said, are you going to change this because this is, here's the evidence as to why you should change it. And then after months and months and months and months and months, they wrote back and said no. <laughs> and we don't know why. Uh, so we, we, Michael and uh, the rest of the team are picking up on that so that we can actually eventually beat the Americans with a stick and say, you've got to release this and allow people to do it because they're, otherwise they're breaking the law. Um, and I just, that's where I thought I would just show the image of Hatra. That's a satellite image that we, we commissioned and paid for uh, just to see so we could do the comparison. And this was just after ISIS had been in uh, and destroyed some of the satire in that one temple. Um, but we wanted to see what else had been done uh, and, and at the moment, fingers crossed and touch, touch wood, uh, there's been no further damage at Hatra. Um, but you can see, if you can remember back to the previous slide, you can see that a road's been built and a settlement has been has built up there. Um, so there's still time to do. Isn't time to talk about that one. Um, I just wanted to show this series of slides very quickly, which is of the Eastern Desert in Egypt, just to show how rapidly, um, and each image is just a year apart, um, so this is 2010, and what you're looking at, these are remnants of ancient mining. In fact, these are the structures where uh, either people were living or part of the mining structure. And you can just see little bits of the mining here. But as a result of the financial crash and then the Arab Spring, it became commercially viable to extract the precious metals um, with open mining and that is the transformation and each one of those is literally just a year apart um, and so that is that is often the pace of change that our team are looking at in it's not everywhere across the Middle East but when you come across it it is pretty dramatic um, so that's why we think our, our project is very important and why the database is very important in terms of recording it um, and other examples here where we we've, we've We've been photographing this because it's a very visible and very uh, interesting site. And then the um, Azraq bypass was built, and they were, I guess, taking the stone. And again, what a lost opportunity. That could have been a wonderful excavation, um, but it's just been damaged uh, more and more e as each year goes by. Um, and other examples here, this is down in the south of Jordan, Ma'an, uh, very important, one of three uh, Islamic caravanserai, and they're all connected. 
and we think those that may be aqueducts as well as walls, and then the same site, just one year apart, and uh, we believe that they, they've used the stone to build up, to, to put water in there, so you've got a bit, you can then have gravity-fed irrigation for growing olives down in that area. So again, it is to do with agriculture and food, so uh, very important. Other examples that we've used a lot, this is a government-controlled uh, Apamir in Syria, 2011, and then that's the scale. A year later, the scale of looting uh, on a, all across here, and then that's just a detail. And those are individual looting pits. Uh, and so part of our project is also trying to understand uh, the scale and market in terms of illicit trafficking. Um, I mentioned Yemen earlier, and I put, you know, Zabini network. Um, it was Andrea and, uh, and also Michael Fradley that said, we must do something in Yemen. Um, and luckily, Andrea knew uh, French archaeologists who were working in Yemen already, so he had an idea of where we might be able to focus our attention and also share the data. Um, and that, that uh, has worked really well. And in fact, this very week, as of yesterday, um, we've, we're doing the third, second training course with the people from the Department of Antiquities in Yemen and they've all had to fly to Addis Ababa to do the training. The first training we did in a man in Jordan, but for some reason during 2019, the Jordanians said, no, Yemenis have got to have visas. They applied for visas and were rejected, so we've, we've had to take them all to Yemen. Um, the, Yemen train, the Yemeni trainees had to spend 24 hours in the, in the airport in Djibouti, um, so they won't be that fresh for their training today. But the other reason for showing this is, can you see the, the, what looked like looting pits there? And generally, when there is conflict, looting increases. But interestingly, that hasn't happened in Yemen or hasn't happened on this particular site. So we've worked with other satellite companies who've monitored this over the, over the years, and it seems as if it's remained static, which is good news. Um, and it may be, there may be lots of reasons for that, um, but we're still trying to understand it. And then uh, in terms of just analysing the database, uh, you can do it, as it were, by the type of site or by the type of threat. And as I've said, agriculture is huge. Uh, what we've said here, naturally, is really what we mean, climate change, but infrastructure and transport, uh, looting, uh, again, in there, and then lots of others that needs much more work on it. But as I said at the beginning, um, once a site is damaged or destroyed, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, it's gone for good. It's not as if it's buried and become visible. It's actually gone for good, uh, which is why we think it's really important. And just three images that I often refer to this as, if you like, the bleeding heart. This is the wonderful site of Jury Europas in Syria. Um, this is it on the 28th of December 2011. And you can see the excavations that have taken place uh, over the years, particularly by Yale, but also others, and the spoil tips and everything else. But then when you look on April the 2nd, 2014, every black dot you can see on there is a looting pit. This was uh, ISIS-controlled area, and they sold licenses to people to do the looting um, and then would buy the, uh, the objects. And then there it is on the 25th of December uh, 2015, uh, showing the detail of it. And, and although this is truly depressing, and we were discussing this at the, at the conference, at the Bannier conference in, in Oxford, maybe this is where resources should be devoted to actually see just how much damage has been done. 
and also do proper excavation on it so that we might be then able to track some of the artifacts. And it's not just, it, it's both inside the site. And, I mean, think of this as, as, as the Rotterdam of the ancient world, in that you've got the Euphrates here. This is, this is an entrepot. This is where stuff was going out and coming in. Um, and it's a pretty long-lived site. But these are all the burials. This is the extramural burial site. Virtually every one damaged and destroyed. Um, so uh, just to go to, to, to where we are, if you like, in terms of, I like to refer to this as the heritage cycle. We used to use it in historic England, English Heritage and the Heritage Lottery Fund. And then I showed it at a, a, a conference. And Paul Collins, in, Paul Collins at the Ashmolean Museum said, oh, can I borrow it? And he stuck a picture of uh, the ziggurat of Ur in the middle, which I thought was much better than my slide, so I borrowed it back again. Um, but, the, but the argument runs that if you understand what you've got, uh, people will value it. And that value can be, um, it can be an economic value, but it can be a social value. It doesn't matter. They'll take care of it. And if you care for it, then they can enjoy it. And the more you enjoy it, the more you want to understand it. So hence the heritage cycle. I feel we're still at this level moving a little bit to this level, but we've still got a long way to go. Uh, and not just in the Middle East and North Africa, this is worldwide, this is a big issue as to you know why is it that the cultural heritage is important. I don't have an easy answer for that, um, but I think the majority of people think that looking after uh, your cultural heritage is important. And then just finally, very quickly, um, we'd said in our original bid to Arcadia that we would want to do training because there's only so much uh, we could do in our offices and in, in our work. We needed to do the training. The Cultural Protection Fund was created in uh, 2016. We applied and started this training project in 2017. It comes to an end on the 31st of January. Where, um, the Cultural Protection Fund have uh, got a year's extension, but that won't start until April. So the, the three or four staff who we've got on the project are either unemployed or hanging on by their fingertips between uh, January and April. And we just, fingers crossed, that we will get extra money to keep them going for a year because it's been massively successful. Um, Andrea was crucial in it, uh, both in terms of setting it up, um, but also it was, a, it was a technological challenge because each, there are gonna be, the work that we have actually trained 160 people each one of them had to have a computer that was not only on the desk but linked to the internet and had all the right software on it. Um, and Andrea was absolutely instrumental. This is us in uh, Alexandria. Um, and I was look, trying to find Andrea on this picture. And I think the reason he's not there is either he's taking the picture or he's still back at the hotel sorting out the IT. Oh, he is there. Oh, he is there. Yeah, no, I found him. You found him. Well done. Yes, he's there. I couldn't see him when I was looking on my small screen. I can now see him. No, he is there. That's good. Um, and, uh, the, and all the trainees, they have to go on, um, as part of it, they have to assess a site. And I just put this one in, which is he's called Bahan Majan in, in Baghdad. Um, because I was lucky enough to be there in 1981 at a conference, and it, it, you go down, you go down steps into it, because the land has, has come up either side of it. Um, but they were very reluctant to allow us to go, partly because they weren't sure whether we were allowed in, because they knew it had flooded. Can you see the salt on here? Yes. The water it, from here all the way, it, it's full of water. And one, what's happened is, um, as a result of the conflict and the bombing, 
Um, the water system of this particular area um, has not been resolved since probably 10 years. And so it is, it is rapidly deteriorating. But it is a 16th century uh, caravanserai, absolutely crucial. So when I said, would we be able to visit, they said yes. And then they said, can you make this your case study and, and field visit for uh, Baghdad? But anyway, um, as I hope you've seen, I like to have an overview. Andrea liked to have an overview. Um, I've talked about him as an innovator, as a scholar, but he also came up with this crazy idea that we have a Protecting the Past conference series. And the first one was in October 2015 in Amman. The second one was in Soleimaniya 2016. Uh, the third one was in Tunisia. Uh, the fourth one was in Sharjah. Um, and that's just another picture of him with his friend uh, Pierre Francesco. But I put it on because he never ran out of energy. He was just so energetic in doing this the whole time. And Sharjah was actually the last time I saw him. Um, and this was... Uh, probably the last public engagement that Andrea did. Uh, um, I think that's right, isn't it, in terms before of December, yeah, out. before he fell ill, because he wasn't yeah. well on that day, I remember. Um, but the, he, he was chairing a session. Um, so he did, you know, as a very young man, develop this uh, uh, Protecting the Past conference. And the, the most recent one was in Agadir in Morocco. Uh, and we opened it with a, uh, a, a eulogy, as it were, to him. Now, I, I was going to... Um, say that my nickname for him was Four Screens Zerbini because he always had four screens. Um, and here he's not living up to his reputation. There's only three. Uh, but that's because he moved from that desk to this desk where he was able to get an extra one on here so he could get his four screens. He was always on it. And sometimes it would be at midnight or whatever else he would still be working. Um, and I just wanted to then end with why were the reason we're here uh, in Kings because of this that um, this project Mahdi that, um, that Carol mentioned at the beginning um, uh, a whole host of people here and Alessandro as well uh, and it's the Newton Fund isn't it yes that, yeah that funds it and the AHRC uh, a whole range of different people the, the Kings digital lab uh, very important because this is about access to digital information that's the team there for it. Um, it was Andrea's idea, I believe, wasn't it? He, he yes. put the project, he, he put the submission in. Um, and uh, there's the team at the top. And those are the key outputs for it. Um, but probably the, the, the one, to, it is a catalogue of data sets. It's trying to bring everything together so that people can um, get access to the information without making a big fuss about it, actually getting it done, um, which I think is really important because, you know, access to information is absolutely key. Um, and then wanted to end with just something that um, uh, Andrea's mother sent us, um, uh, which, you know, she's, she, she, this is written on the um, tribute to him on our website. Uh, and she says, Andrea has asked that on his grave, so we write Dante's words from the Divina Commedia. Um, I won't do it in Italian. I'll do it in English. You were not made to live like brutes, but to follow virtue and knowledge. And I think that's a wonderful sentiment. Um, oh, I thought I'd, I'd taken that out. Um, and this is a picture of him in, in uh, Alexandria setting up all these computers. Um, and, and I thought, well, maybe I should just caption that as Andrea the Digital Angel. So there we are. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Bob. And I'd just actually like to say thank you very much to Stuart Dunn, who's head of the Department of Digital Humanities, who facilitated this lecture also here this evening. Um, so uh, we've combined, or Bob has combined many things, a tribute to our shared colleague, um, Andrea, um, the digital, <laughs> a love of life, um, a, an amazing legacy. Uh, Andrea was, was just 35 years old when he, he passed away. He did an amazing amount in those years, but has also really left, um, left a legacy that we're following up and many ideas of which the Madea project is, is, is just one example. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so he will be remembered and, and his ideas and spirit lives on in those those. So I thought, uh, would you take some questions? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah, <laughs> on, on yeah. various anything various sport. Issues. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's cricket. <laughs> what, what what database did you guys end up using? I just started curiosity. Well, the, the, it's based on the Arches platform, okay. and that was at the suggestion of our funders. So we said yes because most of the work had been done, and then you customise it. And that was where Andrea came into his own was customising it. Yeah. Um, and it, it was then that we discovered that as a teenager he had done computer programming and understood Python and JSON and that. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it, that was. It. And the idea, the whole thing about the arches is it's been developed by the Getty Conservation Institute and the World Monuments Fund, so that archaeologists worldwide can have the basic building block. And I often liken it to to a car, in that you know you know what you want. It's got to have some wheels, an engine and a seat and a steering wheel, but everything else you can customise. And the database is a bit like that. Some of the, some of the things that Andrea did, you think, well, why have you done that like that? But that's databases for you. To what extent yeah. do you, have you, have you got any protection? Have you found any new sites that, that haven't been previously discovered and shown them to the government and you've got protection <laughs> and, and, and no building? Good, good question. Um, we have, but whether they actually end up being protected is then out of our hands. Yes, but sometimes it has and sometimes it hasn't. And what I've said is in the, uh, maybe the next Protecting the Past conference will deal with exactly that subject. Yeah. They've recently changed the law in Egypt, <coughs> but there are, there are so many examples of where really important sites that should have been protected have been destroyed yeah. because they don't have the force of the law behind them. Yeah. Um, we actually have quite a strong law in Britain um, but in many of the countries they don't. Or even if they do, then they're not enforced because it's owned by a, an important family or it's the military or it's this or it's that. So it's a real problem. Presumably then, in terms of actually publicising new sites, is, there must be a balance there. That, 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 yeah, that was another thing which is our funders said um, you have to, everything you do has to be open access. I said that's fine. But what do you mean by open access when it comes to the database? Because we don't want people finding stuff because we've found it yeah. and then damaging it. And they said, well, as long as you don't sell it. So, so that's good. So we can have a registration system. And they said, yes, that's fine. So to get access to our database, you can go into a certain level. But then after that, you have to get permission from us to be registered. And then it's time limited. So if it's an, you know, if it's an MA student at any university in the world saying, I'm really interested in this, we'll say, yes, you can have that information. But once you finish being a student, you can't and carry on. The problem with all that is that actually people who loot and people who are met, and we've found this in Britain in terms of metal detectors, 
A lot of them know where the sites are anyway. But it's just that we don't want to be responsible that they said we found it on your website. But it is, it's incredible how much uh, people know that archaeologists don't know. Archaeologists are fairly... No, I'm putting the boat yeah. <laughs> I'm being recorded. Thanks, Bob. Um, we see a lot in the, in the popular press and, and in the, the literature that's available within the profession about the, the looting in places like Iraq, Syria, mm. a little bit in Iraq. Can you give us any sort of update on Libya? I haven't seen anything really recent about what's happening in the major sites. Yeah. So when, at the end, when you were talking about training, is there any contact at the moment with the Department of Antiquities in, in Tripoli? Yeah, yeah. We, the, so, so through our team in Leicester, we did the training, we've done the training in Tunisia and the Libyans. There are two Department of Antiquities because there are two governments in Libya. And that's the problem. And they both come and uh, it, it, it seems as if for whatever reason, the looting is either so secret, nobody knows about it, or it just isn't happening. And there was a, a, an American group looked at the condition of Leptis Magna, and there was this great long report, oh, I'm going to have to read this, and I ploughed through it, and at the end it said, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, because the local people said, no, whoever you are, you're not coming in. We value this place, we've always valued this place, and no, you're not coming in. And they did try, and, there were, and, and the, the report said there were a couple of concrete blocks that were put in by the locals to stop them driving in. So I, I don't want to be too positive about what's happening in Libya because it is a bit of a case, but at the moment we think that it's not as bad as it might be. Um, I've got a question about the Eastern Desert photographs in Egypt. Can you tell me which old mining site it was? Because I'm interested in Egyptology and I'm also a geologist. And I've been trying to get to the Eastern Desert for a long time, but of course it's not if I, If I... If we swap emails, yeah. I'll get the member of staff who did to give you exact details. Thank you. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I was quite cold to see those. Yeah. 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 I know that things are bad in Egypt, but I didn't know how. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, re it, it's a relatively small area, but, it, but and, and obviously I use it for effect, but it is pretty dramatic, isn't it? Yeah. And there are other areas as well now. And what is happening in Sudan as well? Yeah. Um, I've been uh, looking at the uh, portal quiz, uh, culture in crisis, that is it's a similar, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, uh, proposal. Yes. Can you explain to us what the difference between, you know, your... My understanding, is this is the V&A portal, is it? The, the culture in crisis thing through the V&A museum. My understanding is what they're trying to do is, is just have a place where all the projects doing similar work to ours, that people can go and see what they're doing, either by country or by type, because there's lots of different ways in which you can, can look at this. Um, you know, for example, the, the Americans had a cultural heritage initiative which, which was just looking at the threats to sites through looting in Iraq and Syria. And so that, I don't know if that's listed in there, but it, it's so that you can actually see the difference between all the different projects. That's my understanding anyway. Um, and in fact, I looked at it just the other day because they said your, your informa the information on your site is on this website and some of the information they've got is wrong, so I need to change it. Oh, it's not been recorded. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> 
it seems that the, the early instances of error photography were mostly planimetric, mm -hmm. and then it seemed that the later, and maybe the best practice is possibly planimetric, but also oblique. Yes. Does yeah. it matter? It, yes and no. Because nowadays, as long as you take enough of the bleak, bleak photographs, you can then do 3D reconstruction and actually look, look at them in stereo. So it, there was a time it mattered a bit more, um, but the very, and obviously the very early development of, of air photography, um, before, very early in the First World War, they, didn't, they took an observer and the observer would draw what they saw, which is crazy. And then somebody said, why don't you take a camera? And then from 1950 onwards, when you look at the number of photographs taken, and, and it was just the way they, they mounted the camera was mounted vertically. Yeah. But the pilot and the observer, well, they were changing glass negatives in flight, which must have been just a Just, I mean, some of the very early ones, it was handheld. Um, but, but nowadays, and actually, as long as you've got the over, overlapping obliques, you'll still get the stereo image. So that's, you know, there, there are lots of ways of doing it. There was a question here. Oh, sorry, sorry. Hi. Um, I know you've kind of spoken about this tangentially through the other answers, but I was wondering if you could talk more about barriers to public understanding of heritage at the grassroots mm. vernacular level mm. in the region. Of course, the region being massive, but based yes. on your own experience yeah. and expertise, um, and whether you have to work with or want to do more work with particular um, forms of, I suppose, mediators or gatekeepers mm. at that grassroots level in order to enhance that sort of public understanding? Um, really good question, and, and I, I didn't put that bit in because as part of the Cultural Protection Fund, we said that we would not only do the training, but then explain to as many people as possible what we've done and why we've done it. So we created panels, um, exhibition panels, that, that um, for example, in Egypt, the most recent one, it went to a town in the north and was open for two weeks, and every day the local school teachers took a different school to go and look at it and say, and it's in Arabic and it's in, in English. I think the biggest challenge is exactly that, raising awareness of not only is what, of, of what's there, but what can be done about it. And unless, and unless it's, as it were, the local population interested in it, it's not going to change, no matter what the law is and no matter what the top-down would be. If in, and, and we heard stories when we, we launched the exhibition in Aswan in 2018, and a lady there was telling us from the, Acad the Academy of Sciences she said, what happens in Egypt is that an archaeological site um, will be cordoned off on the edge of a town, and then somebody will put in a planning application to build on it. It'll be refused, but then it'll become a car park, for example. And then five years later, it's forgotten that it was an archaeological site, or the authorities have turned a blind eye to it, and then they get the planning permission to do it. So it's, it's, it's only when the locals have the memory uh, where there are, you know, often there aren't the local populations. And, and the other aspect is, and I think this is where we haven't done enough, is, is going at the local political level to say the decisions you've made locally have an impact on the cultural heritage. And again, that's a worldwide phenomenon. When we worked for uh, English Heritage, we used to have, we had a thing called the um, Historic Environment Local Management Helm. I think it may still be on their website, but it was talking to local politicians that 
if they made a decision about a hospital or a road and the access and everything else, it has an impact on the cultural heritage. Often they had no idea because it, they, it was just beyond their experience. And yet, at weekends, they would love to walk on Dartmoor or Bodmin Moor and enjoy the archaeology, but they didn't realise there's so much everywhere. And I think that's the message that we want to portray. And those, all the, all the uh, exhibitions are now online on our website, so you can have a look at them. But there's more to do. And I think that if the Cultural Protection Fund continues in terms of funding, that's the route we would want to do, which is to raise awareness. I just want to add on to that. Yeah. Can we think of ways to enable ordinary, as we always call them, people to contribute? The, well, the problem is of being marched in by your schoolmaster and shown yeah, yeah, some yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just completely hierarchical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I've been wondering a lot about whether we should be encouraging people to take photographs of their cameras. Yes, yeah. And yeah. upload, and they might not be terribly useful. No, fair enough. But yes, definitely. No. They've done something themselves. Yes, yeah. And it seems to me to sort of impose understanding on people rather than offering them some kind of engagement is important. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to find a site moment. Yeah, that one will do. Um, the, other, the other way of looking at all this is, is to say not have experts doing it, but just, just have a group of people who will you do it through crowdsourcing as it were citizen science and maybe we should be doing more of that the problem is you end up sorting out a load of rubbish yeah, of course, of course. and therefore it's much better to have training but there's a really good website called terror watchers t-e-r-r-a watchers done by stephen savage where he takes you through a tutorial and he says, and, and I haven't looked at it for about 18 months, but I said that everybody who does the training should look at that beforehand because it takes you through the basic principles. And he, and he guides you, it, you know, almost on, a, on like, like a motorway, he'll take you on a journey and you know there's a big landscape elsewhere, but he's just taking you through this little bit and he's saying, and, and, and there's a little test, and I think that that may be something for the future we could do more of. But it's a different approach. And you can do it in Arabic also. Yeah. So there are ways of doing it. Um, and part of the problem is is getting the funding and getting the organisation to make all that happen. Yeah. But it, it's not impossible. 